0: Second Sunday of Eastertide, we have our last sermon in our series on Luke's gospel. Luke reports more events from that first Easter Sunday as the risen Jesus appears to his disciples. And so as we prepare for the preaching of the word, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, by the power of your spirit, open the scriptures to us. Open our eyes to see Christ there and reveal to us in the breaking of bread. And kindle our hearts to believe in him. Where we despair, bring us hope. And our sadness, surprise us with joy. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in Luke 24, beginning at verse 13, a passage that was just read for you, Luke 24. In verse 13, Luke makes it clear the events he is about to describe here take place on the same day as the discovery of the empty tomb. This is still the day of resurrection, the first day of the week, the first day of new creation, as Pastor Chad showed last week. And so in verse 13, Luke writes, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, these two are disciples, but they're not part of the twelve. They are part of the larger group of disciples who have been following Jesus on his journey, Why are they leaving Jerusalem? Why are they traveling to this village, Emmaus? Perhaps they were from there. Perhaps they were lodging there. We don't know. But the fact that they are leaving Jerusalem now seems significant. Does it indicate that, in their minds at least, the Jesus movement is over? This excitement which brought them to the city one week ago, perhaps with Palm branches in their hands and hosannas on their lips. What happened to that? What went wrong? Well, let us read on and see. Verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Uh, You you get the sense that the disciples in this moment, uh, even though they witness all the events of Jesus' final week, they still don't know what to make of it. They're still confused. They're still wondering. They are casting about, trying to make sense of things that don't make sense. Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You've got the passive verb there. Their eyes were kept. From recognizing him. That's Luke's way of saying this was an act of God. God closes these disciples' eyes. He clouds their understanding so that he can reveal Jesus to them at the proper time. They don't recognize Jesus. Verse 17 And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Now here's the first explicit description that we get of the disciples' emotional state in that day. They are sad. The word can be translated gloomy or sullen or dark. Why are two disciples of Christ heavy with sadness on Easter morning and walking away from Jerusalem? But notice, though, that the Lord draws near to his people in their sorrow. He's concerned for them. He asks them what they are talking about. Verse 18. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Cleopas doesn't know that it's Jesus he's addressing. He doesn't realize the irony of his words. We, as Luke's readers, know the visitor does know what happened in Jerusalem because it all happened to him. But it's also interesting that Cleopas calls him visitor. Jesus is, in fact, the great visitor. Come from heaven to earth. God incarnate in human flesh. God has visited his people in Jesus. Though Jesus says Jerusalem did not know the time of their visitation, they didn't perceive it. So these disciples, in this moment, kind of become symbolic of Israel as a whole. They don't know it is the Christ who has visited them. They don't know it is the Christ who walks with them on the road. They are spiritually blind, as many in Israel have been, to the truth about Jesus. But Jesus plays along for a time. And I think he intends to draw the disciples out to to hear where their hearts are at in this moment, to even test their faith and see if they still believe. Verse 19 And he said to them, What things, what things have happened in Jerusalem these last few days? Tell me about it. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. It strikes me that their answer sounds a lot like the creed. You recognize that? I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. But their creed's missing something, isn't it? Where's the resurrection? See, the resurrection makes all the difference. The resurrection means the difference between an obituary and a confession of faith. It's not that these disciples haven't heard about the empty tomb. If you skip down to verse 22, you see Cleopas says, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You see, these disciples have heard the same reports we've all heard, the same report Pastor Chad preached on last week. The tomb was empty. But for these disciples, that's only a puzzling question at this point. It's a strange report, a vision. They don't know what to make of it. Perhaps the tomb is empty, as everyone has been saying. Perhaps someone had visions of angels, but him they did not see. No one has seen Jesus. An empty tomb does not a resurrection make. And so Cleopas' creed ends with, was crucified, died, and was buried. He stops short at that point in his account. If you notice, you go back up to verse 20. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I want you to zero in on that last sentence. But... We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What what do they mean? What was their hope? They had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel, be a redeemer the way that Moses was a redeemer and had redeemed Israel from Pharaoh. They had hoped that Jesus would deliver Israel from the Romans. They had hoped Jesus would defeat the nations as the Davidic king of Psalm 118 did. They had hoped that Jesus would sit on David's throne and make Israel a prosperous earthly kingdom once again. They had hoped. Imperfect tense. It means they hoped in the past, but they do not hope anymore. Their hope had died on a cross and been buried in the earth. Why are these disciples standing still, heavy with sadness? Because hope has died and it has given way to despair. Now if we want to see the real beauty of this story, we can't just gloss over this too quickly. We have to sit in the darkness of despair with the disciples for a time. It's easy for us to dismiss or even disparage the disciples for their doubt, but that's because we know who the visitor is. We know how the story ends. We know the rest of the creed. Try to walk an Emmaus Road mile in their shoes. These disciples had found hope in Jesus of Nazareth, they had heard him speak, they had seen him heal. He was a prophet mighty in deed and word. They believed he was the long-expected Messiah. And he said he was bringing in the kingdom of God, didn't he? Weren't they right to put their hope in Jesus? Hadn't their people been taught to hope for these things by Moses and the prophets and the scriptures for hundreds of years? You see, the disciples thought they knew where the story of Jesus was going. They thought they knew what the future held. Perhaps not all the details. They don't seem to have things too thought through. But the story had to have a happy ending. After all, this was God's will. Jesus would be king and Israel would be finally redeemed. But then he died. Then he died. Crowned with thorns instead of gold hung on a rebel's cross instead of seated on David's throne. Hope died, and despair was raised in its place. Again, they thought they knew what the future held, even now. But now, they believed it held only grief, disappointment, and despair. What hope could there be if Jesus had died? You know the feeling. I know the feeling. You had hoped that God would give you the job you'd been working toward. You knew you'd be able to serve him in that job and to provide for your family, but suddenly things change. The company goes a different direction, and you're sitting there with bills covering the kitchen table. You had hoped that God would work in the life of your friend or family member who's an unbeliever. Doesn't God want them to follow Christ? But here you are still praying and pleading and watching them reject him time and time again. You had hoped that you would spend the rest of your life with your loved one. Watch them grow up or have them grow old with you. Share laughter and love and life with them, the good gifts of God. Doesn't God want you to sing with them at church? dance with them at the wedding, celebrate with them at the graduation. But he takes them away, and all that's left is despair. Everyone here will one day walk that road to Emmaus. You thought you knew what God was doing. You thought you knew where he was leading. It seemed like joy was finally coming. And suddenly the whole thing comes crashing down, And you're left reeling and stumbling and clawing at the dirt, trying desperately to piece together the life that's been shattered. And so that's where these two disciples are when the visitor finds them on the road to Emmaus. And Luke says that Jesus draws near to them in their despair. Christ is drawn to those who have abandoned hope. And he's come to bring good news. Unbelievably good news. There is hope. It's not the hope that they had cherished. That's true. That hope of an earthly kingdom and political revolution in Israel, that hope had to die. Because Christ came to bring a different hope. A new hope, which, oddly enough, is an old hope. You might call it deep hope, a hope that was always there, though Israel's eyes had been blind to it, just as these disciples' eyes are now kept from recognizing Jesus. And so Jesus speaks to the despairing disciples as the visitor. Verse 25, and he said to them, "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you like to have been there to hear that sermon? Now don't be too harsh on the disciples. You know as well as I do, there is no verse in the Old Testament that says the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. That would have been helpful, right? There is certainly no verse that says, one day a carpenter's son named Jesus is going to be crucified, but don't despair because on Sunday morning he's going to be resurrected. You won't find the Apostles' Creed Uh, you know, hidden away somewhere in the genealogies and numbers or something where nobody's ever looking for it. There aren't explicit verses like that. So how can Jesus say that the whole of Hebrew Scripture teaches that the Christ would suffer and then enter into his glory? Again, it would be nice if Luke recorded that conversation for us, but perhaps we can make a good guess. Let's think about it. Are there any stories in the Hebrew Scriptures where someone who is chosen by God, anointed by God, is then rejected by men and suffers at their hands, but is then delivered by God and raised up to a position of glory and rule and authority? Are there any stories like that in the Old Testament? All I can think of is... Noah, and Abraham, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Tamar, and Job, and Moses, and Samson, and Samuel, and Ruth, and David, and Elisha, and Elijah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Isaiah, and Esther, and you can probably think of a few too. Not to mention the story of Israel as a whole as they suffer exile and are restored time and again. So no, it's no stretch to say that the Old Testament is all about God's anointed one first suffering and then entering into glory. It's a story told over and over again with different names and faces, but the same story. And so perhaps Jesus is saying to these despairing disciples, you lost your hope when you saw the Christ suffer? then your hope was not the deep hope of the scriptures. If it was, you would know that in those stories, glory did not come apart from suffering, but through suffering, and on the other side of suffering. That's how God has always worked through his chosen ones. He is no Christ who does not suffer, And God always raises his suffering servant to glory on the other side. Is your hope the deep hope the scriptures portray? And so the visitor walks along the way with the despairing disciples and he preaches to them. He opens the scriptures to them. He catechizes them. In the face of despair, he offers them the deep scriptural hope of messianic suffering that leads to glory. But notice that after hours of walking with Jesus and listening as he shows himself to be the fulfillment of the scriptures, still they don't recognize that the Christ is standing there before them. Isn't teaching enough? Isn't preaching enough? Isn't having the right theology and the right interpretation enough? But there is more that Christ wants to do. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So Jesus acts as if he was going away. Is he testing the disciples? Will they welcome the stranger into their feast? Do they desire to hear more about the Christ? Are they eager to receive the deep hope he offers? They plead with him to stay. And the darkness of evening that grows around them is like the darkness of despair that has invaded their hearts. But part of the deep hope of Scripture is that God loves to bring light when the darkness is deepest. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Take, bless, break, give. It's the same pattern in every meal that Jesus serves from the feeding of the 5,000 to the Last Supper. Even that process is symbolically the pattern of his messianic work. Jesus takes on our flesh. He blesses it by his sinless life and his holy love. He is broken in his crucifixion. And as the resurrected king, he is given to us for our salvation. Perhaps that is why this is the moment when, as verse 31 tells us, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Finally, he opened the scriptures to them on the road, but it is the breaking of bread that he uses to open their eyes. And at that same moment, he vanished from their sight. We don't know why. Perhaps it was a way of teaching these disciples that even when Jesus has vanished from our sight, his presence is still known to us in the breaking of bread. So here we are. Once again, the disciples are left alone trying to make sense of what has just happened to them. Verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now notice how Luke caps that story and what the disciples emphasize to their friends. He was known to them in the breaking of bread. Might make a good sermon title. J.R.R. Tolkien once wrote an essay where he tried to describe how stories speak to some of our deepest longings. And he thought the deepest of these was the longing for consolation, what we sometimes call a happy ending. But it's not just a happy ending. Tolkien talked about a sudden turn that the best stories contain. And that turn has to come at the moment when all hope is lost, when doom seems certain, when death is inevitable. And suddenly there's an unexpected turn. Escape, deliverance, salvation, final defeat is denied. The heroes are spared from death and hope revives. Tolkien says we love this sudden turn when we see it because it gives us a glimpse of joy. Joy beyond the walls of the world. A joy as poignant as grief. When the turn comes, it can give to child or man that hears it a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart. It often brings tears, tears of joy, because the joy is so like sorrow, because it comes from those places, Tolkien says, where joy and sorrow are at one, reconciled. He says in these stories, this peculiar quality of this joy that we feel at the turn can be explained as a sudden glimpse of underlying reality or truth. We, We can see something of the way the world was meant to be in those moments. It's not only a consolation for the sorrow of this world, but a satisfaction and an answer to that question, Is it true? Tolkien coined a name for this turn. He called it eucatastrophe. You, Eu, the Greek word for good. Catastrophe, you know, because we use that word in English. A good catastrophe. It seems like a paradox to us, but that is the idea. A sudden turn from sorrow to joy, from death to life. Now, as we read the story of the Emmaus Road, this side of history, we we know all along who the visitor is. We know what's going to happen. We know how the story ends. But I think for the two disciples who were there that day, I have to think they experienced eucatastrophe in that moment when Jesus breaks bread with them. Think about it. They begin their journey overcome with sadness. Hope himself has died. But that night, in the deepest darkness, suddenly Jesus is standing right there before them, offering them bread. Lord, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? They catch their breath. Their hearts burn within them. Tears of sorrow become tears of joy. They only see him for a moment. But it's enough. The Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Deep hope has come. Perhaps we can catch a glimpse of their joy. Perhaps we can begin to share their hope. And we, too, long to experience our eucatastrophe when we see Jesus face to face and feast with him at his banquet. Luke knows that we were not there on the road to Emmaus. He's not writing this down for Cleopas and the other disciple who saw Jesus. Luke writes for Theophilus, for those who love God. Luke writes for the first Christians. And Luke writes for all Christians who come after them that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I think in the way he recounts this Emmaus Road story, Luke is intentionally giving all of us Christians a paradigmatic picture of what it is to worship this Christ. What we have here in story form is a picture of how Christian worship has always been. Think about this. After all, Luke will soon write in Acts 2.42 what was most important to the early church. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Why did the breaking of bread make that list? Because Christ was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now consider the flow of this Emmaus Road story from the first Resurrection Sunday. Is it not the same thing that Christians have been doing every Sunday since? Think about it. Christ draws near to us on the first day of the week to walk with us. He calls to us and he seeks to reveal our hearts. Christ then opens the scriptures to us, interpreting to us in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And all along we've been walking toward a meal. Christ himself makes himself known to us in the breaking of bread. And having revealed himself to us, Christ sends us forth with joyful tidings to share with the world. You see, every Sunday, Jesus Christ visits us and walks with us down the Emmaus Road. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday here, as the early church did, because Christ was known to them in the breaking of bread. It wasn't enough for these disciples to simply hear the preaching of the word. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm a fan of preaching. Okay? That should be fairly obvious. The preaching of the word is absolutely essential. Without the preaching of the word, the breaking of bread is simply snack time. It doesn't reveal Christ. The preaching of the word is non-negotiable. And if we were just brains on a stick and all we needed was information and teaching, we could stop there. But we're not brains on a stick. We are embodied creatures made from the earth, creatures of the sixth day. We are hungry beings, and the God-given world is our banquet, and we are called to offer it all up as a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And so Christ did not make himself known in the word alone. He waited until the breaking of the bread and made himself known to them in that physical and edible act as well. And the ministry of Jesus has been filled with meals throughout Luke's gospel. It was a priority for him. So it is is more than fitting that at the end of the gospel, he is still teaching and feeding his sheep. So the church throughout the ages has taken this combination and this order seriously. We are called to the work of teaching and eating, word and sacrament, in which the teaching of the word prepares for and leads to the fellowship of the table, in which the audible word prepares for and leads to the edible word. And the reformers worked to bring us back to this gospel balance, that the Lord's Supper should not be celebrated apart from the preaching of the word, and the preaching of the word should always be accompanied by the celebration of the Supper because our Lord opened the scriptures to the disciples and he made himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. So we walk this Emmaus road with Jesus every Sunday. He speaks to us and feeds us on the eucatastrophe of the gospel every Lord's day. He meets us in our despair. He tells us that suffering does not mean hope is lost. Suffering means we are walking the road with Christ, the suffering servant. The deep hope of the scriptures teach us that the Father will one day vindicate his suffering servants because that's the theme of every story in the book. Jesus opens to us the scriptures and then he invites us to a memorial of his story. He breaks bread with us, the bread, his body, the wine, his blood, and we know him in the breaking of the bread. We get a taste of the full feast to come. We catch a glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. And having taken us, blessed us, and broken us, Jesus then gives us to the world with hearts aflame. He commissions us to make disciples of all nations, to tell them what has happened on the road, how the risen Christ was known to us in the breaking of the bread. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your beloved Son as the bread of heaven. Come down to visit us in our despair. You gave this bread to be broken for us, for it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, that we might be forgiven. And you then raised your Christ to glory, defeating sin and death for us, and crowning him King of all creation. Open our eyes to see Jesus as he is revealed to us in the scriptures, and known to us in the breaking of bread. Help us to believe that he who died now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, Amen.